0: The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. We'll
1: we'll be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, finishing out actually uh, this great chapter where we have followed Christ and So many different things that he has done, miraculous and so forth. Uh, But this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 38. Beginning in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out... The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can call upon you and and ask you to remember your promises to us. Thank you that we have a covenant-keeping God who we can call upon And ask to work on our behalf. We're so thankful that our God. That you God are gracious to us. And that your grace is enough for us. I think too. Jesus. He's our brother. He is our friend. But he is also our king. Pray as we go through this passage. That we'll reflect well. Upon the kingship of Christ. As it is revealed within this text. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open these words to our hearts and minds. We pray this all in our King's name. Amen. Some of you are really into reading uh, different book series, uh, watching different movie series, trilogies, and whatnot, or uh, watching even different TV seasons and season after season of different shows. And we, we like those kinds of things because a lot of times they, they focus within a, a perfect, or they, they look at a, a certain character. They look at a particular fictional character, follow after his life. When you think of a certain TV series, you think of a certain person. When you think of a certain book series, you think of a certain person. For instance, you think of the Lord of the Rings. You think of Frodo, right? You think about the Chronicles of Narnia. You think about the four children that it at least originally follows after and so on. Good authors, they, they slowly reveal more and more about the character that they are writing about. They, they write about it in such a way that it, that it keeps you on the edge of your seat, that you, you get to the end of a, a TV season and you just can't wait for the next season to come out to find out because of course there's some sort of cliffhanger and so on. That's a bit of what it's been like to walk through the book of Matthew together. We've been, we've been following Jesus, chapter after chapter, seeing all of these different things that he has done, things that he has said, things that have happened to him. Uh, tracing his great authority throughout the book, Matthew, right? We're, we're tracing his authority throughout this book. So that's what we've been doing for really the last nine chapters. Most recently last week we saw that he had the power to heal a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This was, this was a woman who had a physical ailment that, that not only caused her to have a, this problem for 12 years, but that also caused her to have other issues when it came to the law of Moses, when it came to relating with other people, when it came to going to the temple of the Lord. For worship. So she not only had to deal with that physical amulet itself, the fact that she was flowing blood constantly, but she could not come before the Lord and worship because she was constantly unclean. Yet the great thing that we saw last week is that Jesus comes to her, he reaches out, and although she is unclean, he himself, a clean person, touches her and makes her whole, he heals her. We also saw that Jesus continued walking. It was this situation with Jairus' daughter, whom he raised from the dead. Again, tracking his incredible power, his authority to raise a girl back from the dead. And this morning we're going to continue looking at the miraculous, looking at a couple more miracles that Jesus does. But then we're going to be finishing with Jesus calling his disciples, calling them to, to now begin doing the things that he had been doing. Jesus was now going to give his disciples these men that he has been raising and training up in, to follow after him. He's now going to give them the authority to heal. He's going to give them the authority to exercise demons and so on. But first, in verses 27 to 31, we see that Jesus encounters two blind men. Like last week with the little girl who was raised from the dead, this is the first time that Jesus deals with a blind person, at least specifically in the book of Matthew, as shown to us in an account. So as humans, we have our five senses, right? I did Google it to make sure that I got all five senses correct. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. Everybody agree? Those are our five senses. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. And I think out of all of those senses that we have, the last one I would want to lose is my sight. That would be the last thing to go. But these two men that we encounter this morning, they were totally blind. You can imagine in a day where they didn't have Braille. Right? Or, or the other devices that we have nowadays, that it would have been incredibly difficult for blind people to really do anything but become beggars unless they had family that would care for them. When my wife and I lived in Wisconsin, there was a, a woman who sent an email to our church one time, and so this email made its way to me somehow, and she wanted uh, more information about our church and, and what we did, the ministries we had, or whatever. But what was, you, what was unique about her And as she soon revealed to us was that she was blind. She needed a ride to church. And so Bethany and I became one of her sources of transportation. But this lady was incredible. She, despite her blindness, she had adopted a special needs child of her own to take care of. Uh, Despite her blindness, she had a master's degree she had an iPhone, she had a computer, she had really all of those things that you and I engage with and use on a daily basis, she herself had. In order to even sing along with us in worship, she would print out the lyrics on this big binder and just follow along in the braille, Braille. And she had a beautiful voice, and she'd just sing out and worship to the Lord. It was incredible to watch her. But you can imagine, again, in these days, 2,000 years ago, well, they didn't have iPhones back then. They didn't have the Braille back then to be able to follow along and worship and all of those kinds of things. It would have been far more difficult for a blind person to do the things they are able to do now. But, you know, I think even our disposition toward blind people is different as well than it was 2,000 years ago. When we see a blind person, we may take pity, feel bad a little. You know, you see them walking, you may see them stumble, and you, you take heart, you feel bad over their situation. But actually over in John 9, you don't have to turn there, but in John 9, we see that the Jews of Jesus' day, when they saw a blind person, they assumed that there was sin involved. That there was some sort of sin that caused them to be blind. That they they had to have some sort of sin in their life or some sort of sin in their parents life in order to give them such a terrible handicap. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking by uh, a blind man and and the disciples ask Jesus to say, who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? In other words, Jesus, this this man's blindness is obviously the result of some sort of sin. So how did his blindness come upon him? Whose sin was it? His sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus simply responds, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the works of God would be displayed in that situation in John 9. This man would be healed and he would believe in him. In Christ, But I think we can take that information from John 9 and pull it over to our situation here in Matthew chapter 9. That the blindness of these two men, what wasn't necessarily the result of their sin or their parents' sin. Yet the point of their blindness was so that the works of God could be revealed in them. But these two men that we're, we're looking at this morning, they were following after Christ. Somehow they're, they're within these crowds. The crowds, again, they're always around Jesus and They were, these blind men were in earshot, they were able to get close enough to Jesus, and they were crying, or shouting, or calling out to Christ, have mercy on us, son of David. So that's what they're calling out, this is the verse, have mercy on us, son of David. Now this is an interesting thing to call Jesus the son of David. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. If you remember, Matthew 1 holds the family tree of Jesus. If you want to see your family tree, I I suppose you go to Ancestry.com. If you want to see Jesus' family tree, I didn't get paid for that commercial. If you want to see Jesus' family tree, you go to Matthew chapter 1. But look at the very first verse of the first chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, again, this family tree of Matthew 1 is going to show two things about Jesus as specified in that first verse. It was going to show first that he is truly Jewish, that he was a descendant of Abraham. And so in verse 2 you see Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah, and on and on it goes. This this this, this family tree is going to show who Jesus is as it relates to the fact that he was Jewish. But it was also going to show a second thing. As shown in verse 1. That he was the son of David. That he was truly of kingly descent. So you can go back to Matthew chapter 9. But why do you think that it's important to see, or for us in our study of Matthew, why is it important for us in our study of Matthew to know that he is the son of David? Because what we've been tracing is the authority of our king. That he is truly the king. The king. And part of the importance is seeing that he has come from the line of David. And so here these two blind men are, back in chapter 9, shouting out to Jesus, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of a king. As Charles Spurgeon has said, even the blind could see that he was a king's son. And so... These blind men are beseeching Christ on behalf of his kingly heritage to act like a king and to show mercy to them as his people. So these two men, they're screaming out to Christ. They're literally begging for mercy. This should bring to mind what we've even seen in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. You can put your eyes up there really quick. He says, Jesus says to them, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This should bring that To mind as we continue in the idea of have mercy on us son of David the very thing that Jesus had just taught was was most needful is the very thing he is going to show these two blind men he's going to display great mercy to them look down at verse 28 when he entered the house the blind men came and Jesus said to them do you believe that I am able to do this and they said to him yes Lord Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. So Jesus looks at these two men, two men who had never seen his face, two men uh, who had actually never seen Jesus do an actual miracle, and he asks them, Do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can make you go from blind to being able to see? Uh, Again, paralleling, paralleling this with spiritual condition of man. It's so discouraging to talk to people who know about Jesus. They know about the things that He had done. They've heard it. They know about His work on the cross for sin. But they don't believe that He can specifically do anything for them. That their sin is somehow too great for Christ to forgive, that their eyes are somehow too spiritually blind for Christ to be able to make them see, that they are somehow more spiritually dead than other people. But the truth is, if you're here thinking something like that, there is nobody that Jesus cannot touch and make whole. There are no eyes that Jesus cannot touch and make well. I mean, you know what a church is? You know, you know what we are? We're a bunch of formerly spiritually blind people that Christ has caused to see that we all once were lost but now we're found we were blind but now we see we are all the recipients of amazing grace given eyes to see the beauty of Christ and by faith your eyes can be made to see as well so do you believe like these blind men that Christ can heal you the proof how do we know that these men were genuinely had genuine faith because they saw The proof that they had genuine faith was in the fact that their eyes were opened. If they didn't have genuine faith in Christ that he could heal them, they would have remained blind. And so I ask you, is your faith genuine? Do you genuinely see? After healing these two men, Jesus warns them not to go off. It's interesting, he tells them not to go off and to spread the news about what he had just done for them. He didn't want the nation again to be in havoc over the fact that he was healing these people and the crowds to slow him down from his mission, what he came to accomplish. But we see that these men actually did not obey Christ. They spread his fame throughout the entire area despite the warning of Jesus to not say anything about it. Yet seemingly, on the heels of this healing of the two blind men, a demoniac who could not speak was brought to Jesus. So first you have a couple of blind men. Second, you have a man who cannot speak as a result of demon possession. So interesting enough, this mute man was brought to Jesus. Matthew doesn't record Jesus saying anything to the man. But in verse 33, it's clearly evident that Jesus does go ahead and cast the demon out of him. You see that Jesus doesn't deal with the symptom of the problem. So you have a man who's a demoniac, and, but he cannot speak as well. The fact that he was mute, that he couldn't speak, was the result of being demon possessed. And so Jesus doesn't deal with the symptom of the problem. He goes right to the heart of the problem itself. The fact that he could not speak was because that demon was inside him. And so Jesus goes right to that source, pulls the demon out of him, and then the man can speak. Look down at verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything seen like this in Israel. So Jesus... Cast the demon out of this man. He begins to speak. The crowds step back and they marvel. But what we need to be really clear about uh, is that marveling does not equal belief. Just because, just because these men or this crowd were, were marveling, does not mean that they believed in Jesus. They were just simply standing out and saying. "Oh, it could be just some sort of freak show or, or whatever situation." Oh, wow, that's a real miracle or whatever. But they did not believe. Marveling does not equal belief. We can marvel all that we want over what the Bible says about Jesus. But if we do not believe what the Bible says about him. Then we are no better off than the crowd who marveled and never believed. So this, the man is set free from the demon. The crowd marvels. But look at the response of the Pharisees in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Have you ever been jealous Over the giftedness of somebody else. Uh, So jealous maybe that you come up with an explanation for how they got as good as they are at what it is that they do. For instance, And I I tried this illustration on my family last night. And they didn't really get it. But hopefully you guys do. Uh, So maybe a, a girl leans over to another girl. And they're looking at a girl across the room. And they say, one of them says, wow, isn't she so pretty? And then the other girl says, it's only because she has makeup on. Or maybe for a guy. I guess it's not working for you guys either. Uh, maybe, maybe there are two guys and they're sitting together and they're watching a baseball game. And they say, wow, isn't Jimmy a really good baseball player? And then the other guy says, oh, no, it's only because his dad's loaded and was able to put him in a ton of baseball camps. Or, or maybe a little more sophisticated. Um, like this. Uh, Billy got that promotion. Not because he was good at his job, not because of any other reason like that. Billy got the promotion because he's a real kiss-up to the boss. Or they only got to serve on that board because they had a family member get them in. Or whatever, hopefully you get the point. We love to make excuses for why people are gifted at something. Or why uh, they got something. Or why they're in a certain position because we are jealous people. But this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing with Christ. They make an excuse as to how he is able to do these incredible miracles. These Pharisees were jealous over his power. So they had to make an excuse for it. Either the Pharisees had to concede that Jesus' power was from God. Or they had to come up with another way that he received his power. And the most logical assumption was that he had received his power from Satan. So they step to the side and they say, oh well, he has received his power from the prince of demons. But the fact that Jesus had authoritative power was completely impossible for them to deny. So they had to come up and assume that the source of his power was evil. Otherwise, the only rational explanation was that this man was from God. Something that they would never be willing to admit. So Jesus has healed the two blind men. He has cast the demon out of yet another man, but in verse 35 we really get a summary statement of the ministry of Christ. Go ahead and look there. It says this: and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So he taught, he healed, he proclaimed. This was his ministry, going throughout. All of Israel, teaching in as many synagogues as possible, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all of those that were coming to him who had ailments like we've seen of leprosy or blindness or being crippled. All of those, what an incredible life that Jesus had. What an incredible way to spend your days. What an opportunity for the disciples that we see in the beginning of chapter 10, in the first several verses, it gives us their names. But what an incredible opportunity for them to see Jesus and to walk with Jesus and to see Him perform all of these incredible deeds. But I think what is more incredible than all of this, and and really even moving to read, is what we find in verse 36. And that is the compassion of Christ. Look there in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This compassion of Jesus is incredible. This word for compassion is the same word used in the parable of the prodigal son. When the father looks out and he sees his son walking toward him, the father is filled with compassion and he runs after his son. Jesus has compassion on the crowds when you work in a particular field or you're around a certain kind of people all the time, it can become very easy to get immune to their problems, to get immune to their difficulties or situation to maybe not have the same compassion that you initially had when you entered into that position when you first had met them or maybe for parents of a first baby it's easy to have compassion on the infant as you're trying to get him or her onto a schedule but as the time goes on you find yourself more and more impatient and irritated with the child Or maybe some of you who have been a school teacher or you are a school teacher. It's easy to maybe be nice on the first day of school. But after the first week, you think you're going to go crazy. But not so with Jesus. Jesus looks out at this crowd and has compassion for them. Even though he has been teaching and healing and preaching to them for some time now. But look at the exact reason for why he was compassionate in verse 36. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The idea here is that they had no comfort. They had no guidance. They were sheep without a shepherd we should not forget that Jesus within these pages of Matthew is not contained to the gospels themselves. These these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're ancient biographies of the person and work of Jesus. But Jesus is not simply limited to those four gospels. He is the eternal Christ, He has always been. He has observed the people of Israel throughout their entire history. He has seen the great shepherds even of the people. Men like Moses and Joshua and David. Men who sought after God and wanted to lead the people well. But he has also seen throughout history the miserable shepherds. The the ones who didn't lead well. The terrible kings. The terrible leaders that they had had. They were often at times and even within the Old Testament. We see that the people of Israel are described. As, as, as sheep without a shepherd. Yet we know that Jesus from John chapter 10, Jesus and, and, and Psalm 23 and so many other places, he is the good shepherd. That he is the chief shepherd, which should really give us a great comfort as, as his people. That we have the comfort that comes from him. We have the guidance that comes from Jesus. But this these crowds... These crowds that Jesus was looking out on that day. They did not have that. And it moved him to compassion. To seeing the crowds even for you. To seeing a crowd of people. Who are without the comfort and guidance of King Jesus. Does that compel you to compassion? Do you have times of fresh realization when you look out at people and you look out at a crowd and you have a fresh realization of compassion and it's renewed for those who do not have Christ, for those who don't have a shepherd. It's so easy to just walk around and see people all over the place and just just assume everybody's going about their daily business but not really thinking that they are without hope. They're without any kind of guidance. They're without any kind of comfort. They do not have Christ. You go to a sporting event or even Windsor Fair and you see the stands filled with people watching the races or watching the truck pulls. Do you have compassion for them? Jesus had compassion for those without comfort and without guidance and we should reflect that as well. But look at the first words that he says after being moved to compassion over these crowds. In verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but well, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, Jesus states two realities here. He states a good reality, he states a bad reality, and then he gives a directive. He says, first, that the harvest is truly plentiful. That's a good thing. The harvest is plentiful. That's a good reality. But the second reality is a bad one the laborers are few. But the directive is to pray. The harvest is plentiful. It's ready. It's it's harvest time. The reality, the sad reality, is that the laborers are few. So Jesus directs his disciples to pray, to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. So Jesus directs his disciples to pray this way, and not just casually pray for more laborers, but earnestly pray, he says. Urgently pray. One author has said that believers' prayers participate in the fulfillment of God's plans. We have been directed to pray by Christ for more laborers to go out into the fields. The Lord is over the harvest and he uses our prayers for more laborers to participate in his great harvest. But what I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't direct us to pray for the crowd itself. He doesn't turn to his disciples and say, I want you to pray that all of these people, I want you to pray that this crowd would trust in me. That this crowd would believe in the gospel. He says, pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest field. Another author author said this, apparently his concern was not that the lost would not come to the Father. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. I want to read that again. Apparently his concern was not that the lost would not come to the father. Instead his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. And think as we look at the church across even our own country. In past years we have really excelled and done well in this area of sending laborers into the harvest field. But we have lost that kind of mission. The church has lost that kind of emphasis. Professing followers of Christ, we don't often go to the lost. We could spend a lot of time talking about the situation in our world as a whole with all of the unreached people groups throughout the entire world. Places where the name of Christ has literally never been named, where you could grow up and never hear the name of Jesus, not even in a joke, not in a swear word, not in any of that. You just never hear the name of Christ. Those fields are certainly white unto harvest. My friend, you don't even have to become a missionary to an unreached people group in order to be in the harvest field. Here in Maine, you can run into a grandparent, a parent, and a child, all of whom have never worshipped within a gospel-preaching church. As I've shared before, there are 1.3 million people in the state of Maine. Over a million, well over a million of them, do not go to a gospel-preaching church. There's a lot of work to be done here in the state of Maine. Through, and a lot of work is being done through different associations, through different denominations. I'm thankful for our own Baptist Association that we're becoming a part of. And the mission board that our church here even benefits from. Uh, I had the opportunity just last weekend to be uh, at the Maine Baptist Association meeting. Uh, and, and right now, within our denomination, there are 24 Southern Baptist churches within the state of Maine. And really, for 1.3 million people, that's pretty, pretty dismal. But the encouraging thing is that there are 17 church plants going on right now in this state. So really, not quite double, but almost there. Within a few years, we should have double of what we have right now. And that's encouraging. That laborers, that the Lord of the harvest is sending laborers to your state. I'm not from here, but the Lord has sent us here. There are so many pastors that are pastoring different churches and church plants that I've I've been able, able to meet the last several weeks that are coming to Maine. They're from Texas. They're from Georgia. They're from all different areas, but they're coming to Maine. They're coming to New England because it's white under harvest here. There are hundreds of thousands and millions of people who do not know Jesus, and the Lord is doing a great work. I want to encourage you with that, but more can be done. Pray. As the disciples were told to pray. That the Lord of the harvest would continue to send out more and more laborers into the field. How are they going to hear without preachers? How are they going to hear this good news without somebody explaining it to them? Are you praying to this end? Are you praying that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the mission field? Are you praying about yourself and your own opportunity to participate in the harvesting of souls? This great work. May God help us in this important task. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will continue to do this work. How encouraging, even within our own denomination and association, that 17 churches are being planted here right now. That all over this state, right today, there are 17 little works that are beginning. We pray, Lord, that you will give those pastors and leaders of those churches strength as they go about this great work. We pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will continue sending workers to this state, to this region that so desperately needs the message of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you will open our own hearts and minds to the possibilities and the responsibility to be good witnesses of the gospel, sharing your word. We think of Christ and all that he has done on earth. And we see that he has healed these blind men. And knowing that he can also heal the spiritually blind. And Lord, we think of even the demoniac, casting out the demon, causing them to speak. You've opened our mouths to be able to speak your truth. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to do this great work in our church, in our state, in our country. We pray this all. In Christ's name,
0: amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the contents in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242 242- 0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine 04363 Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.